You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to our newest episode of the Transformative Podcast. If you have been waiting for us to post a new episode for a couple of weeks now, it is because we took the luxury of turning off our computers for the Easter break, and we sincerely hope that you did the same. My name is Irene Remestvensky. I coordinate our science communication efforts here at Reset and also produce this podcast. My special guest today, whom we have the pleasure of hosting in Vienna live right now, is Fabian Baumann. Fabian Baumann is the holder of the Postdoc Mobility Grant from the Swiss National Science Foundation. Following studies in Geneva, St. Petersburg and Oxford, he completed his PhD in history at the University of Basel in 2020. He was a visiting postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago before joining us at Reset as visiting postdoctoral researcher earlier this year. Fabian Baumann's first book, called Dynasty Divided, A Family History of Russian and Ukrainian Nationalism, will be published by NIU Press, Cornell University Press, in August this year. Tracing the story of one family whose members included both Russian and Ukrainian nationalists, the book analyzes what prompted 19th century intellectuals to identify with either one or another imagined community. Fabian is now working on a postdoctoral research project about, in quotation marks, banal forms of nationalism and the promotion of republican statehood in late Soviet Ukraine. He looks at state propaganda and the statement's republican leaders and works mainly on the 1970s, a period which is traditionally described as one of Russification and denationalization in Soviet Ukraine. Welcome, Fabian. Hi, Irena. In today's talk, we will focus on the bits of your research that connect the 1970s with more current history of Ukraine. I know that you're working on a new article on the banal nationalism and symbolic ethnicity. I'm one of the lucky few who got to read the draft before the publication, and I will try not to give off too much away. But maybe I can mention that you start off with painting a picture of a rather peaceful coexistence of not all, but most Ukrainians with the Soviet system in the 1980s, some of them participating in it willingly, and some just being realistic and accepting the Moscow rule, basically with some grace. Could you describe for me the state of Ukrainian nationalist movement in the 1970s and 1980s, and maybe shed some light on the precursors to the very historic decision that Ukrainians took in 1991, when they voted with overwhelming majority for national independence? Was it an unexpected decision, judging from what we know about the 1970s and 1980s? Well, looking back, of course, one is uh, always inclined to construct a teleology whereby the outcome of national independence was somehow unavoidable. But if you look at the 1970s and the early 1980s before Perestroika, really there were rather few signs that a majority of Ukrainians would vote to break off from the Soviet Union only a few years later. Ukraine was a firmly integrated part of the Soviet Union. Some people may have been strongly anti-Soviet, especially in the west of the country. Others may not have been particularly happy with communist rule from Moscow. But overall, most Ukrainians 
had found some kind of a place in the system. We must also remember that this was, for the first time in the 20th century, a period of peace in Ukraine. So there were relatively few signs for an upcoming independence movement. And yet, after Perestroika in 1991, support for independence was overwhelming. And that really prompted me to think about what made independence seem like a plausible possibility to so many Ukrainians. I know that nationality and nationhood were not exactly foreign words in the Bolshevik vocabulary, but I wonder what kinds of nationality and what kinds of nationalism would, for example, be allowed or sort of allowed in the Soviet system and which were completely out of bounds. So to an extent here, we must distinguish between the first decade of Soviet rule and the later periods. So what was so remarkable about Soviet communism was that it integrated the assumption of nationality as a basis for political legitimacy. This is the system known as Soviet federalism, which began to be constructed roughly in 1919 and then was the basis for the foundation of the Soviet Union. And that meant that nationality was institutionalized in two forms. On the one hand, every republic of the Soviet Union was defined as the national homeland of its titular nationality. So that's the Ukrainian Soviet Republic, the Georgian Soviet Republic, the Belarusian Soviet Republic, and so on. And on the other hand, starting in the Stalin period, nationality was also completely institutionalized as an element of personal identity. So every person had a nationality noted in their passport and children inherited it from their parents. Now, in the 20s, promotion of nationality was very strong. The Soviet regime did a lot to promote the various national languages, various national high cultures. Uh, it introduced languages such as Ukrainian into the administration of the territories. Some of these things were walked back under Stalin and in the post-Stalinist period. Russian, again, gained a more important role as a language for the entire union. And of course, there were heavy repressions against all attempts to connect nationality more closely to political claims. As soon as someone tried to claim more autonomy for their territory or for their nation, they would usually be repressed quite heavily. But what never changed in the Soviet Union was this double institutionalization of nationality. So up to the very end, there were still the national republics, including Soviet Ukraine, and there was still this personal category of nationality. No matter how Russified a republic like Ukraine became, no matter how tight the political control from the center was, there was always Ukraine and there were always Ukrainians as per the regime's own definitions. The late Soviet period, for example, is remembered by many Ukrainians as a time of massive Russification, which in quotation marks succeeded after the dissident movement of the 1960s, the so-called Chiste Desatniki, were harshly suppressed by the Soviet authorities, and especially after several prominent leaders of this movement received heavy prison sentences or had to retract their words about Ukrainian nation. If Ukraine appears to be so completely Russified by this time, does it mean that the concepts of nationality and nationalism were effectively dead by then? This popular perception of the 70s in particular as a period of heavy Russification, this popular perception is of course not unjustified. Indeed, especially once the Republic's leadership changed from Petro Shelest to Volodymyr Sherbitsky in 1972, 
Uh, Russification made strides in Soviet Ukraine. Russian increasingly replaced Ukrainian as the main language of all public spheres. More people switched to speaking Russian in their everyday lives. And the national intelligentsia, the same 1960s that you mentioned, were sometimes heavily repressed and imprisoned. What's interesting here to me is, as I said, that at the same time, Ukraine continued to exist and Ukrainian institutions continued to exist. And what I posit in my article is that precisely in this time when ethno-national culture, national history, the national language seem to be under extremely heavy pressure, a different conceptualization of Ukraine and Ukrainianness increasingly emerged one that was ethno-historically weak, one that was more bound to Soviet Republican quasi-statehood, and one that could also work in the Russian language. And this, to me, is an important development because it meant that even people who did not identify with this traditional, more ethno-national form of Ukrainianness, who did not care much about Ukrainian ethnic traditions or about 19th century Ukrainian high culture, for instance, these people could now still see themselves as Ukrainians, even though they may have spoken Russian in everyday life, even though they may not have been particularly good Ukrainian speakers, even though they may have been pretty Sovietized in their cultural outlook. And this, to me, is an important development because really it anticipates the situation in independent Ukraine when many Russian-speaking Ukrainians still came to see themselves as Ukrainians and as patriots of the Ukrainian nation and state. So this is why I see this period of apparent Russification as in fact an important step in the prehistory of Ukrainian independence. I mean, some of the Shestadisatniki were fighting Russification from the positions of being a Soviet citizen, right? So for me, for example, when years ago I opened up the book Internationalism or Russification by Ivan Zuba, I was very surprised at the kind of arguments he used because I was expecting a much more nationalist, in today's sense, nationalist narrative. But it was basically Lenin quotations that he used to refute the complete dissolvement of Ukrainian nationality into the Russian and the Soviet nationality. It was very interesting for me back then, and I think this is something that most Ukrainians don't remember anymore, if I'm correct. Indeed, uh, Dioba argued from the point of view of a return to basically 1920s Leninist nationality policies. And in the vision of the Shestisyatniki, of course, this also included a strong commitment to the Ukrainian language. But what I see as emerging instead is what you could call Brezhnev Ukrainianness, a Ukrainianness that did not seem to differ much in terms of culture or cultural or political markers that could work very well in the Russian language, that mostly worked in categories of Soviet loyalty and Soviet culture even less ethno-cultural than the vision of 1920s Korinizatsia or even of national communism. But at the same time, merely by being defined as Ukrainian in the institutional sense, it still helped convince some Ukrainians that they were Ukrainians and that Ukrainian nationality was a thing. And I posit in my article that this may also have contributed to making the idea of national independence more plausible to some Ukrainian citizens. And what was the role of the economy or economic prowess of the Ukrainian Socialist Republic in constructing the Soviet and national narratives? 
It was extremely important, in fact. The Soviet republics and their leaderships had economic responsibilities of fulfilling the plans defined by the center. And this meant that these republican leaderships competed among themselves for economic resources to be allocated from Moscow. So the economy was really the main arena where republican leaders got to fight for their republic, so to speak. And Ukraine, of course, was an economically powerful republic, one of the most important, in fact, the most important after the Russian Soviet Federal Republic. This meant that in their propaganda to the population, the republican leadership liked to stress the economic prowess of the Ukrainian republic. They often portrayed Ukraine as an economic space, be it on economic maps or be it in their speeches. They also often mentioned particular achievements, such as high production of grain, successful production of tractors, the first Soviet computers. Individual factories on the territory could become markers of republican pride in these propagandistic speeches and texts. And here I think this may be another factor that may have inadvertently convinced some Soviet Ukrainians that in fact their republic was economically powerful and that it might even ultimately be able to function on its own, detached from the Soviet Union. Back in the day, there were not such an idea as economic independence or the idea that a truly independent state needs to produce all of the consumer goods itself. When you were talking about the Soviet Ukraine as producing the tractors and the grain for the entire Soviet Union, basically. Do I understand correctly that the leadership in Moscow was never trying to, for example, limit that to not have Ukraine being the only producer of certain goods that the Russian Soviet Republic could not produce? I mean, the central leadership, of course, had political considerations in mind when they allocated these resources. And of course, they were not interested in making individual republics completely self-dependent. But if you read the Soviet-Ukrainian propaganda from the period, it really almost sounds as if Soviet Ukraine was an economic superpower in its own right that could basically produce almost everything. But I think what's important here is that because the Soviet Union in its propaganda had such an enormous focus on productivity and labor, particular economic products more strongly than elsewhere could become part of this Sovietized national identity. So particular places or regions had their signature product. And for the Ukrainian Republic, one of them was, of course, grain, uh, Ukraine being one of the most important suppliers in the world. And then it could be regional things like buses in the Lviv region, for instance, or of course, coal and steel in the Donbass. It is precisely this productivist thinking that is at the core of uh, Soviet socialist ideology that was able to transform ideas of national identity away from ethno-historical categories and on to these, if you will, modernist, productivist economic categories. A totally different question, but we all know that the Soviet propaganda machine was quite famous for having a very vivid visual language. And I'm wondering what kind of visual language was used by the Soviet system to depict Ukrainians, Ukrainianness, Ukrainian nation? Did they use visual language to depict those things and in which ways? In post-war Soviet propagandas, I see mainly two strategies of depicting Ukraine and Ukrainianness. One of them is precisely the kind of republican state symbolism that is detached from ethnic categories. 
This includes, for instance, the new Soviet-Ukrainian flag, which was introduced in a late Stalinist period, featuring a broad red stripe with the hammer, sickle and star, alongside a narrower light blue stripe, a much more recognizable flag than the interwar flag, which had looked just exactly like the standard Soviet flag had. This also included individual lines of verse from the new Soviet-Ukrainian anthem. It included depictions of the territory, the map as logo in the words of Benedict Anderson. So these were the Republican statehood markers. And on the other hand, there was a depiction of folkloric ethnographic markers. And in the case of Ukraine, this was on the one hand, the famous Vishivanka, the embroidered peasant shirt that had already been a symbol of Ukrainianness in the 19th century national movement. In the late Soviet propaganda, you often find it very simplified and stylized. Earlier depictions sometimes do show correct local ethnographic specificity. But by the end of the Soviet period, really the embroidered pattern had just been a catch-all marker for Ukrainianness. And the other thing that I find interesting is that there was also an ethno-racial marker of Ukrainianness in that Ukrainians on propaganda posters were usually depicted as dark-eyed and dark-haired. And this is, again, an image of Ukrainians that goes back to 19th century romanticism that had been taken up by racial anthropologists in the early 20th century, and that clearly, via this racial anthropology, ultimately found its way into Soviet propaganda, and there served as a contrast to depictions of the Russian people who were usually shown to be light-haired and blue-eyed. So especially around the 300th anniversary of the Pereyaslav Council in 1954, you have many, many depictions of a Russian and uh, a Ukrainian symbolic figure, and it's always this difference in hair color and eye color. And where does this image of a dark-haired, dark-eyed Ukrainian come from? Because as we know, the modern-day Ukrainians don't on average look like that. I mean, some do, some don't. <laughs> But as always with these stereotypes, there is a link to folklore, there is a link to early 19th century romantic literature, where Cossacks and Cossack women are usually depicted as dark-eyed and dark-haired. And then this romantic stereotype, as I said, found its way into what was then uh, considered cutting-edge science when early 20th century anthropologists such as Fedir Wovk went around Ukraine and measured people's bodies. And his writings also include indicators for eye and hair color. And he claims to have proven that Ukrainians were on average more dark-haired than Russians and Poles. And of course, for nationalists, anthropologists, Like Fedirov, this seemed to be an objective way of proving Ukrainian difference from its uh, Slavic neighbors. In the Soviet propagandistic visual language, of course, the goal cannot have been to differentiate Ukrainians as much as possible. But I think there the goal was rather to create an immediately recognizable image of a Ukrainian to signify diversity of the Soviet Union's cultures. And just as, for instance, Kazakhs, were depicted as black-haired and having Asian features, so Ukrainians just acquired this standard marker of dark hair and dark eyes. So the Soviet authorities seem to have taken a lot of effort to represent Ukrainianness in a way that was acceptable for the Soviet system. I wonder, though, how much all of this mattered to the Ukrainians themselves and how do they perceive this? 
And also, you know, coming back to our first question, how much did it matter for Ukrainians when they decided to vote for independence in 1991? So, of course, it is extremely difficult to reconstruct what exactly normal people were thinking at the time, because, of course, there's no reliable sociological data. I'm not trying to claim here that the Soviet Union somehow invented Ukrainianness or that only through the Soviet experience Ukrainians came to see themselves as Ukrainians. But what I think it did to parts of the population is that it provided a model of Ukrainianness that did not require you to buy into the full political and cultural repertoire of traditional Ukrainian nationalism. It provided a model of Ukrainianness that seems to have been much more compatible with the worldviews, for instance, of Russian-speaking populations in heavily industrialized cities in the East and South. It made it possible for these people to see themselves as Ukrainians, and that's precisely what people like Vladimir Putin have misunderstood about Ukraine. Nowadays in Ukraine, people don't need to be monolingual Ukrainian speakers who cherish the memory of Bandera, to see themselves as Ukrainians. And it is precisely in this coexistence of Soviet worldviews and still a strong national consciousness among some populations in post-Soviet Ukraine it is precisely in this combination that I see evidence that late Soviet Ukrainianness, uh, Brezhnev-style Ukrainianness may have mattered to some people. A brief moment of advertisement. If you are interested in what we do and would like to get a taste of our live academic events, there is a perfect opportunity to do just that on May 24th through 26th this year. We will be organizing our second Reset History and Social Sciences Festival titled Transformations of Equality and Inequality. High-profile voices from academia, the civil society, the arts and culture will discuss multiple dimensions of equality and its many transformations over the past years and decades. There will be lectures, debates and panel discussions accompanied by an attractive cultural program. Everyone is welcome to join us in our open festival tent on the university campus. Visit our webpage reset.at for more information. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Redset in Vienna. Wir sind das Volk! Wir sind das Volk!